But now, Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, that which you tell us is God-breathed, spoken out by you. May you indeed today, Heavenly Father, through your word, teach us, reprove us, correct us, so that we may be trained in righteousness, equipped for every good work, complete for the service of our God. In Jesus Christ we ask. Amen. If you will please stand, if you are able, and take your copy of God's Word. We'll continue this morning into chapter 15 of Matthew, looking at verses 1 through 9. This is found in page 820 of your ESV Pew Bibles. There will be a good amount of explanation that we are going over. Just the passage itself demands that today. I encourage you to be patient. There will be some things that we're not going to understand unless we go through these. But I would also remind you that the reason why these things are sometimes foreign to us is not just because we are far from this part of the region, this time in history, but rather because this is the mind of our God. It is the Word of God. So let us hear it with great reverence and lay these truths upon our hearts as we seek to practice them in our lives with exceeding great joy. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they eat... For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained for me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. In chapter 14, we saw two very great miracles. First, the feeding of the 5,000, and then Jesus walking upon the water. And we noted with both of these that they give us a greater understanding of who Jesus is, but also particularly to his disciples who have been with him now for some time. Again, we've noted last week of this section that it focuses upon the relation that Jesus has with his disciples. And that's interesting because the contrast that we find here is that this is happening as the favors with others begins to decline. For as we ended chapter 14 last week in verses 34 and 36, we're told that the crowd rejected Christ who was proclaiming the spiritual kingdom of God because all they wanted were the miracles. They would press in. They would even come to the point to where they could swipe at and touch the hem of his garment and they would be made well, but they would not listen they would not believe. And I want you to note that because that begins to play into what we hear in the beginning of chapter 15 when we're told then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And I want us to remember again that we've seen the Pharisees and the scribes before. They are both part of the Pharisee party. The scribes are a different group of people, but nevertheless part of the Pharisees. And here as we see them coming to Christ... It is a sign that the opposition of the religious leaders is beginning to escalate. 
And I want you to see how we find that. It's because we note very simply is that they're from Jerusalem. And you would expect that, yes, there were scribes and Pharisees all over the place. But nevertheless, because Judaism or because Jerusalem is the center of Judaism, it figures that these are experts over top of the experts who may be in a local town. And they have come all the way out to Galilee because someone has called them and told them you need to come out here and put this upstart and all his followers in their rightful place. And that's very clear from what we hear in what they ask of Jesus in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Mind you, what he's saying to them is that they're neglecting the tradition of the elders. And while that may sound very straightforward in asking that question, understand that what they're asking here is really a cheap shot at Jesus through the disciples. Because what they're saying is that your disciples, because they break the tradition of the elders, really in a sense that reflects back on you, Jesus, that you pass this on through your teaching and through your example. It shows us that you obviously have no regard for the tradition of the elders that we hold to. And I think that's very interesting because if you'll notice here, they do not accuse Jesus and his disciples of coveting the 10th commandment. They do not accuse them of lying, the ninth commandment. They don't accuse Jesus of breaking the entire second table of the law by hating their neighbors or even the first table by hating their God, but simply for breaking the tradition of the elders. And I want you to hear that because this morning when we think of the tradition of the elders, we may think we kind of might be able to understand what that is or as we go through this, but because it is something that is very ingrained into the history of Israel, and certainly if you were to pull it out of this passage, it would all fall down, I think it's necessary for us to explain this a little bit. I'll try to be as succinct as I can, but I would remind you that all of this begins in 586 BC when Israel is exiled to Babylon. The reason they were, we remember, is that they've forsaken the Lord and gone their own way. They neglected his commandments really from the beginning of when they came into the land. But notice as the Lord himself informs the people through his prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 10, or 29.10, that they will be there for 70 years, which is just a terribly long time, an entire lifetime. Well, just note that our God also tells them in Psalm 136, because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever, that there is always hope for reconciliation and restoration from our Lord. And that's what he puts forth to us in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 12 and 13. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And we know, brothers and sisters, that there were many people who did. And that to hear to be an assistance to those who were concerned about falling back into the lawlessness of their fathers, even while they're in Babylon, and particularly as they went back to the land, we see that here were the scribes. And I mentioned a few weeks ago about the scribes, that yes, they are experts in the law, in other parts of the Gospels or in other Gospels, they're referred to as lawyers, But as Ezra himself was one of these, we remember the occasion in Nehemiah chapter 8 where he steps in 
to teach the people. And he does so, as we're told in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, by reading from the book, the law of God, and that he clearly gave the sense of that reading so that the people would understand it. I want you to note that the sense of this that Nehemiah is, or is spoken of here of, um, of Ezra is basically the interpretation and the application being put forth by someone who is standing before you reading the Word of God. That's something that we experience on a weekly basis. I explained to you, help you to, as much as able to put this into practice. Because in a sense, this is one of the ways that the people of God are protected it's with a right understanding and a right practice that comes from the Word of God. But often as it happens, despite the well-meaning nature of the Pharisees and the scribes, as the next generation hears what has been passed down, especially from very influential rabbis who are honored all throughout Israel, these traditions began to be raised to a different level. In fact... We know that the oral tradition that had been given by these rabbis over the centuries began to grow and to the point where they had to be written down in a book that is referred to as the Mishnah. And then as the tradition even past that continued to understand this, a commentary was written called the Talmud so that they could understand the Mishnah. And I want you to think about that for a minute because here we have the Word of God that they... Add on these other traditions that become so voluminous that it almost eclipses that. But notice that to understand this large and very full book of traditions that you need to have another book to understand it. More tradition to understand the tradition of, oh yes, it was all about the Bible to begin with. And I want you to note that because in time, these Traditions became the, almost the sole focus of the scribes and the Pharisees because in their minds, in making that larger thing in their minds, the main thing that they believed that this was how one became holy with God. This is how one could stand before him in righteousness by keeping the tradition of the elders. And what had happened here is instead of Judaism from the word of God, that this tradition now becomes their religion. Now, granted, they would say they were still Jewish. They would say that they believe the Bible. But understand, as we find with the Talmud, that it says that to be against the word of the scribes is more punishable than to be against the Bible. And the reason for that is, in their minds, which they were very easily able to justify, is that the Talmud, the Mishnah, that these oral traditions that had been put into writing, and probably still had other oral traditions coming through, that this was the application of the Bible. And as it was the application, it was the right application, it was the right, uh, under, or gave you the right understanding of it in a very practical way. I want you to see that, because... The scribes and Pharisees were brought into this, or bought into this 100%. This was what they believed. This is what they defended. This is what they taught children in their schools and adults in their synagogue. But I want us to see that what we're finding here, that it's a lot of tradition and the word of God is being completely eclipsed. Now you may say of us, what about the Westminster Confession of Faith? 
What about the larger catechism? What about the shorter catechism? Things we study regularly. What about the Heidelberg catechism that in corporate worship that we ourselves affirm this morning? Aren't these standards that have been written by men? And don't we often refer to them as part of our Reformed and Presbyterian tradition? Well, yes, we do. And while, yes, they do provide excellent application, not only do we find within them that they continue to point us back to the authority of the word again and again and again, in fact, even quoting scripture throughout so we may rightly understand what it is telling us, but it also warns us again and again against blindly following the tradition of our elders for tradition's sake. In fact, one of the places where we find that in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31, section 4, on synods and councils, basically meetings of elders. It says, synods and councils since the apostles' times, whether in general or in particular, may err, and many have erred. They've gotten things wrong in the past. Therefore, they are not to be made the rule of faith and practice, but to be used as a help in both. Sometimes these things that we have can tell us what's right and what's wrong. We can see a bad example through this. There are things in the past that we've seen as we're studying history of the church on Saturday mornings with the men's group that we are seeing sometimes things that's like, what a bad idea. But let us understand that as the confession of faith does tell us that the word of God in the Old and New Testaments is the only rule of faith and practice. Let us understand that this is what we are to give our minds to. We're to see this as kind of pointing back to this and screaming to us, go back to the word. And I want you to note that because in a culture where tradition is cast off without a thought to whether it is beneficial or not, the church would do well to consider that the wisdom of the past can be necessary for navigating the difficulties of our own day. Not tradition for tradition's sake, but for how it is shown how people have entered into and dealt with problems through the word of God in the time in which they were found. And again, I want you to note, that's not what we note of these religious leaders. That what we see with them is not one looking to the Word of God, but is an implicit faith. Well, we just believe, we don't really know what's in it. We know all the other books, but we don't know this. But I also want us to see that it's important for us to note that in this passage, this tradition that is added to the law doesn't focus on the only firm standard of the law of God, which is what we call the moral law. We do make our divisions here. I told you this would be a long explanation this morning. But nevertheless, the moral law is the Ten Commandments that goes through showing us how we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors, ourselves. And as it makes its way through this, showing us all these things that we might think are good to do on the surface, it goes back to the heart at the end. And then has us go back and review these things here. This is the commandments that, these are the commandments that are binding and always because it speaks to us of the character of our God. But notice that what we see here is that the Pharisees, the scribes, are adding their tradition from the ceremonial law. These temporary types and shadows, external things such as sacrifices and other manner of religious worship that they are always and were only meant to drive people to the holy character and the work of the one that the Lord himself had promised to send. 
And that's what we hear them saying, in a sense, in verse 2, that is, it relates to the ceremonial law that we're told for they do not wash their hands when they eat. And I want you to notice here that that's not a matter of hygiene that they're speaking of. It's not a bad thing to wash your hands before you eat. But notice here that they're not so much concerned about dirt as they are with ceremonial purity. And one of the ways that we are given some insight into this is what we find in Mark's gospel in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. In my Bible, it's a parenthesis because it's kind of showing us here, this is the way you need to understand what's taking place at the time. And we're told here that for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And I want you to see, there's a reason for this practice. Mind you, it wasn't just mindless, let's do this. But rather, there's a reason behind it. In fact, the for instance that we find here is that maybe one day you're in the marketplace and you brush up against a Gentile. Or maybe you touch something that he touched some other point in time. Or maybe you touched something else that was unclean. But either way, you don't really know coming out of the marketplace if you're clean or not. You don't know if you're ceremonial clean, which is terribly important because that meant that you were not able to worship in the temple or the synagogue and that most likely you would have to go outside the gates of the city for some amount of time. So what is it that you are to do? What are the traditions of the elders? We've got it. What you need to do is before each and every meal, you need to ritually wash your hands. And I want you to see, that's not just dipping your hands into a fountain and just you know, wash them off. I've got my hands clean. You kind of show both sides, make sure everybody knows. But rather, it's you hold your hands up and someone else will ritually pour water over your hands. And through that, you are ritually clean. And I want you to know that is something that the Pharisees and the scribes do every single time. And yes, the Old Testament does require washings. But let us understand, as you look into that, it's not as often as you would think. I think of one example, as we saw in Exodus chapter 19, of the people of God, that here they are told that they need to wash their garments because they're at the foot of Sinai and God is going to come meet with them. Or we often see it in regards to pertaining to the priests performing their particular duties. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, or pardon me, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 6, we see that anytime you would come in contact with anything that's dead, whether it be an animal or a person, you need to wash. Or even as we will see this evening in Exodus chapter 30, a big chunk of serving the temple or in the tabernacle. Before you go in and do this, you are called to wash in a piece of the temple furnishings that was explicitly made for that. And I want you to note that because these things in the Old Testament are pointing to the fact that we are a people who are unclean and that we need to turn to the person and the work of Christ to cleanse us from that sin. Only he can do that. But notice the religious leaders engage in washings that are not ordained by God, that extend virtually to everything. For as we continue in Mark chapter 7, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. 
That as we see these things that they engage in that are not ordained by God, we find that they are no longer, that there's no longer anything of the holiness of Christ or his work to cleanse we who are unholy, but it is only a work that they do in themselves. Meaning that the traditions of man leads individuals to substitutes for piety or substitute piety for legalism. Legalism, as I define it, is simply to do what the Lord tells us in his word, first in order to be saved or to be kept in that salvation. Mind you, our obedience to God's word does not do that. It is by trusting in Christ and clinging to him by faith, not by our hands, that we do this. But also there's another aspect of legalism, which is inventing commandments of your own. And that's really what's lurking behind the legalism that we see of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. That behind that legalism is always some measure of lawlessness. That they're able to make their own thing up. This is something that is meant to exalt man. And I want you to hear that because there's always talk in the church of legalism. There's always talk of licentiousness or antinomianism or lawlessness as it is called. But I want us to understand that the only way to break out of this vicious cycle is to turn from ourselves. And those things that man can tell us, this is how you kind of make your way a little closer to God. So we turn from these things to Christ and to the grace of his word and the life that he gives to us. This is what frees us. To serve God with joy and exuberance in our heart. But I want you to understand that that's also the very reason why Jesus responds back to their question. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders with, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? It's a very pointed and sharp statement that he makes back to them. But I want us to note that it's only because their tradition is what they cling to, and it's not divine authority. There's nothing to it except what they put into it, and when they make more of it than they should, it becomes problematic for everyone, obviously. This is what they're teaching to others. And so as Christ puts this question back to them, notice that he does so with the right focus to have them look differently at this because they just don't see it. But brothers and sisters, as the scribes and the Pharisees and all who follow the traditions of man may have some degree of good intent in what they do, this morning, very briefly, I would like for us to see how Christ shows us two ways that the traditions of men do violence to the greater authority of the commandments and the word of the living God. The first, what we see with the traditions of man is that they nullify the word of God. That the traditions of man nullify the word of God. In fact, J.C. Ryle tells us in his commentary, when someone adds to Scripture, he is, li- or is likely to end with them valuing their own addition above Scripture. And that's a true statement because that which favors us individually and allows us to remake ourselves and to give the appearance to ourselves and probably also to others that we are keeping the commands of God, well... Why would we not do that? But let us understand that's why Jesus uses this example that he does in verse 4. For he tells us that 
For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Now I want you to see that this is a statement of the fifth commandment from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and certainly an application of that, or uh, what comes as a result of not keeping it and, uh, from the civil law in Exodus chapter 21, verse 17. You'll notice if you know, particularly our children in the church, if you know Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 3, children obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, that you will note that this is Paul's version of the same, or exact same thing that Jesus is telling us. And yes, I want us to see that because what Jesus is reminding us here is honor involves outward obedience. That we are to go and we are to do what we are called to do. It's never wrong to obey God's word. He gives it to us for our good. But let us understand that not just outward obedience, there's an inner disposition of the heart where that, or where that obedience is immediate, entire, and enjoyable. Because of the love and respect that we have for the one that we are obeying. But while that is the unchangeable standard of the moral law of God, notice the Pharisees undermine this by elevating again their ceremonies. And instead of pointing to a heart that desires to honor God and to honor father and mother, we see in verses 5 through 6, Jesus telling us, But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. The term that is often used of this, you may have heard before, is the Hebrew word korban, which means offering. Something that is devoted to God, that we would expressly take and say that this is not going to be mine. I'm going to give it to God like a sacrifice that is going to be consumed entirely by fire. But I want you to note that's because what we see in the context that what they're in a sense saying in disregard of the fifth commandment is that when your parents are old and needy and they see something that you have that may help or that something that you can get that may help them and they ask for it, that they would expect out of love and honor for them that you would willingly give it. But let us understand that their tradition tells them that if you simply pronounce korban, though you may in fact continue with this thing that they wanted and needed in your own possession, though you may not have needed it, that you may legally and ethically withhold it from your parents, still honoring them according to what tradition says. In a sense, what they're saying here is their parent comes to you and It's something necessary for them. But you say, whatever might be required of me to you in the future, it's been given to God. You you don't need it. I don't need it. I've given it to him. It is a good and holy thing, and people are impressed by that. And I want you to note that because in the commandments, yes, there are exceptions. Even in the fifth commandment, as we saw, as we went through it at the beginning of the year, That if an authority tells you to do something that runs contrary to the word of God, no, you don't have to obey it. Now, mind you, there may come repercussion, as Paul tells us. But I want you to understand that this is an action that we, we see of the scribes and the Pharisees that goes beyond not only the letter of the law, but also the spirit as the only one 
who is granting permission, or this is only one who is granting permission to himself to engage in acts that serve him and to love only himself. And yes, that is in conflict with the word of God as a whole. But it also allows them to be regarded as upright because of what they have outwardly done for God. I don't want you to note that because that really is the problem with man-made traditions. So that they fail to take into account how it relates to the rest of the law. That they only look at it from their own perspective and their applications of mercy and justice tend to lean more towards them or to a group that is like-minded with them and allows them to deny their responsibility to others in the church and to our families so that we do not need to honor anyone. And so... As they disregard the commandments of God for the traditions of man, Jesus tells them very simply, so for the sake of your traditions, you have made void the word of God. Mind you, can they actually make void the word of God? No. But as they teach this as a doctrine that apparently in the minds of many comes from the Bible, or at least as an application of it, they render what the Bible teaches in the authority of God ineffective as they strip away the authority by making it less in the eyes of people. And again, that's not really something I think that they set out to do, but they do it nevertheless because they fail to take into account that the law is from the Lord, he whose thoughts are higher and greater than ours. And that's exactly why as we work through the Sermon on the Mount last year, we saw in Matthew chapter 5, verses 20 through 28, Jesus declared to them on several occasions, you have heard it said, usually in relation to the traditions of the Pharisees and the scribes. But Jesus counters that by saying, but I say to you, the lawgiver correcting what man has done with his truth. This morning, brothers and sisters, do we take to heart that when we attempt to curb our natural desire towards lawlessness by telling each other that we need more legalism, that we have missed the point of the law. Both of these things are lawlessness. And abandoning what the Lord and his wisdom has given to man by our practice makes it null and void as it strangles out the truth in the minds of people. Brothers and sisters, the victim here is always truth. And it falls at the hands of good intentions. But brothers and sisters, we need to be a people who remember what we hear and what we put before you several times during the uh, study in the Ten Commandments when we heard John, 1 John chapter 4.20, for he who does not love his brother, and we could add father and mother, he who does not love these whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And I want you to note that because secondly, we find that the traditions of men also dishonor God. That they not only nullify the word of God, but they dishonor God himself. And that's why Jesus, with a sharp tone in verse 7, tells them, You hypocrites, you pretentious, your pretentious piety makes much of you and little of God and how he reveals his holy character to man. And yes, what Christ exposes of their tradition, that's what he makes of it, but also 
by return, he does that by returning back to the word of truth. That Christ always resets their default setting by bringing them back to the word. And that's what we hear in verses 7 through 9 in the quote that is taken from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Use that for our Old Testament reading, or not our Old Testament reading, but our confession of sin this morning. And I want you to note here what Christ does through this is not only does he expose the root of the problem, but notice that he also gives us a very good lesson in interpreting the Old Testament. Hearing Scripture read and preached is always a good way for us to learn how to do that ourselves. Notice that he particularly is showing us the importance of context. Notice what we find in verse 8 that he tells us, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Notice as the prophet denounces those in his own day who say that they love God because they appear to do righteous things. Here he exposes that as mere lip service. Now mind you, Matthew is not telling us that these Pharisees and the scribes are fulfilling this. There are a lot of places where he tells us that the word was fulfilled, but this is not one of them. But what he's doing here is showing us here that they are instead repeating history. They're falling into the same error as these people who were about to go into exile, these who said we would never return ourselves. That they are showing themselves and their hearts to be far from God. And I want you to hear that because the heart is always prone to overflow, not just in our words as we heard before, but as we find here also in our worship. For verse 9, we're told, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, commandments as men that understand this word vain that is spoken here is a useless exercise pointless because it does not end with us glorifying and enjoying our God but it makes much of ourselves by showing us as something that we're keeping this we're doing this outwardly and so I ask you this morning is Honoring God, our motivation for all we do, especially when we come into his presence. Meaning, are we to do, are we doing what God tells us in his word? And are we considering how it is that we read or, or hear the word read and preached when we are in worship? Are we just checking a box and saying, well, I was present or made it through the sermon with a lot of explanation Um, Or are we seeking to hear God speak through his word so that we may meditate upon his truth? And as we hear in Psalm 119, treasure his word in our hearts so that we may not sin against him. But is it also true not just of our corporate worship, but our individual worship? Meaning, do we desire to learn the doctrine of our God so that in our heart it will overflow in praise to him, which is the only reason for studying doctrine? And reading big, fat, dusty books? Or is it so that we may win a debate? Is it so that we may be seen as someone who knows something? Because I will tell you right now, having seen ministers fall throughout my 20 years of ministry, I've known many of those men who to be very well read in their theology. And their lives were shipwrecked because they had forgotten that if they had only assimilated what was in their mind into their hearts that they would have loved their God. But instead, they proved Paul correct when he tells us in 1 Corinthians 8 that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
But on the other hand, I'd also like for us to see, is this evident, this desire of our heart evident as we pray? We'll hear more of that this evening, but it's easy for us to think that the Lord will be impressed with us just because we're coming and praying. Maybe we spend a little more time today than last. But do we come seeking the Lord because we know the disposition of our heart to stray and to push the Lord to the side in favor of ourselves? This is what the Pharisees do. They exalt themselves in prayer before God and make little of him. You must be impressed with us. Brothers and sisters, it has been a lot of explanation, and I've only had a couple quotes, but while I do not usually make or basically read long quotes, some just have more meat than others. And this, again, is from J.C. Ryle, who tells us in his commentary, which I would highly commend to you, what is the first thing we need in order to be a Christian? A new heart. What is the sacrifice that God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with all our heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me your heart. Brothers and sisters, we are not called to cast out tradition because it's never for good for us to forget the past. But let us be those who would put aside those things of ourselves and our own culture that seek to make us to forget that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The focus here is that Jesus is saying what I have given you as the lawgiver. Fix that upon your mind. It is what will show you your sin and drive you away from it to me. And I want us to know, brothers and sisters, because this is a heart that desires to love our God and to give all honor and glory to our God because of what Christ has done and what he shows himself always to be. Let us go to him now in prayer. Our God and King, this morning, as you have come near to us in your word, we ask, O Lord, that you would abide with us, that you would not leave us in our understanding. We pray, O Father, that we would continue to meditate upon these truths today, examining our own hearts. That is, your word is like a double-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul and the marrow, and even opening our hearts so that we may rightly discern what is inside of them. Lord, we pray today that you may rightly do this. Show us our hearts and let us, O Lord, with the very core of our being, seek a united heart that desires to fear your name and find great delight and joy in Christ, who is our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.